Welcome to Reading Marx's Capital with David Harvey. This course consists of a close reading of Karl Marx's Capital, Volume 1, by CUNY Graduate Center Distinguished Professor David Harvey. The course was recorded at the People's Forum in 2019. The People's Forum is a movement incubator for working-class and marginalized communities and an accessible educational and cultural space in New York City. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for both the Penguin Classics and Vintage Books editions of Capital. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash capital David Harvey. This episode is Class 2, Chapter 1, The Commodity. This was recorded live. Please be mindful there will be some changes in volume. Okay, one of the things I, I really like about uh, the way in which Marx sets up the argument in Volume 1 of Capital is that it's actually a uh, very slickly organized and you, you're sort of drawn from one topic to the other and there's a whole kind of sequential mode uh, in which we start to unpack what goes on inside of the capitalist mode of production viewed as a totality. The difficulty of pro approaching a totality is you and I either start with a totality and that's all you talk about uh, or you start with the pieces and never get to the totality. Well, Marx starts, but he has a very interesting uh, procedure. And I thought I'd start with this uh, today, which is this uh, diagram here, which is what I call a kind of dialectical unfolding of the argument in volume one of uh, Capital. Uh, last week, we, we, we looked at the first section of uh, the first chapter. And there we dealt with the notion of the commodity. And the commodity is a singular uh, thing, particular, uh, but it has a, a dual aspect. It has an, a use value and an exchange value. And Marx talks about the use value and the exchange value. Now, you can't take a commodity and cut it open and say, okay, that's the exchange value and that's the use value. No, this is a social determination of the meaning of a commodity and that it has a dialectical opposition, an antagonism, if you like, potentially, between the use, uh, use value and uh, the exchange value. Uh, Marx asks the question, what lies behind this exchange value? What's the commonality of all of these commodities? And the com commonality is that they are products of human labor. So he postulates the existence of something called value, which is socially necessary labor time. So the argument goes to that point. But as you remember, right at the end of the first section, he kind of says, but socially necessary labor time means nothing unless it's also a use value. So actually value is a unification, a reunification, if you like, of both the exchange value and uh, the use value in this notion of value, which is itself different from the exchange value, different from the exchange value, but which is in a sense a kind of fusion of, of those two. So he comes up then at the end of the first section with the notion of value as socially necessary labor time. But he then kind of says, but what kind of labor are we talking about here? 
Uh, and in the next section, he kind of says, well, we have to think about labor as both concrete labor, that is the actual activity of weaving or metalworking or whatever. So it's a concrete kind of labor, which takes a very specific time. You can say, well, that, that thing took us six hours to make and somebody else did something similar in 10 hours. So there's concrete labor and there's concrete labor time uh, associated uh, with the, the activities of concrete labor. But at the same time as concrete labor is being created, also abstract labor, that is, uh, some sort of representation of value is being created. So the labor process is actually doing two things. One is it's concretely making a use value, but at the same time it's, as it puts it, congealing within the commodity uh, value which is socially necessary labor time. So there is a duality. Now notice what's happened here. You go from something that's singular, you then get the duality, you come to something singular, then you find a duality within that, which is the abstract labor and the concrete labor. And Marx argues, well, again, it's not as if you can take a labor process and say, ah, there's the abstract part, and oh, there's the concrete part. No, there's only one labor process, but it has this dual character. And this dual character is, again, socially determined. <clears throat> and then the question arises, well, how is that dual... Uh, what, what, is it, what brings those two aspects of, of labour together, both the abstract and the, the concrete? The answer is, there is a moment of exchange. And the moment of exchange is actually bringing together both the use value and the exchange value. And, the, and the, ex the exchange value, or the use value and the value, and the moment of exchange. And at that moment, you are trading both aspects. So there's a unity. So when you purchase a commodity, you're purchasing both its concrete useful aspect, but you're also purchasing its abstract qualities. So that this leads him to then talk about the form of exchange value. What is the form taken of exchange when it has this duality embedded within it? And then this leads Marx to talk in the next section about the equivalent form and the relative form. If I have a commodity, I know how much labor I put into it, but I have no idea what it's really worth in terms of its abstract qualities. And I only find that when I trade it with somebody else. And somebody else's commodity is therefore the equivalent of my form of value. So in effect, what I'm doing is I'm measuring my concrete value against a value in somebody else's commodity. So then Marx goes into this uh, long section about relative and equivalent forms of value where he puts on his accountancy hat and gets immensely boring. Uh, and, and, you know, you go through and you say, all right, I got it, I got it. Yeah, okay, I got it. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, okay. How many linen goes into the coat and so on after a while? You're going, oh, oh. But the essential point here is he's kind of saying, if we were living in a barter society, when all goods were bartered, then there would be as many forms of value as there are commodities. And, you know, you can see, 
I, if I value what my commodity is in terms of what somebody else's commodity is, then that is a, a measure of value, but their commodity may not be the one I want, so I may be go for another commodity. So there's as many different uh, forms of value occurring in that situation as there are uh, bartering uh, events. But then Marx kind of says this can understand you can understand this if you're just de dealing with a simple barter society. But when things start to get very complicated. Uh, the barter system doesn't really work very well. If I have potatoes and you want my potatoes, but you're going to sell me cloth and I don't want your cloth, then how do we trade? Well, one of the things I could do is I could, okay, trade my potatoes for your cloth and then take the cloth and trade it on for somebody else uh, who's uh, you know, making uh, spaghetti or something. But when, the, when that starts to happen, things get immensely, immensely complicated. And so Marx kind of says, well, actually what happens is that out of this system, there arises through a series of steps uh, in the relative and equivalent forms of value where a universal equivalent comes into being. So that instead of me you know, taking your cloth and then trading it on for somebody's spaghetti, uh, I could simply trade what I have for money, so that you have uh, the equivalent form of money, which, which is going to be the universal equivalent uh, of all of these trades. But for this to happen requires that there's a great deal of trading going on, and, and a great deal of trading that takes place under certain kinds of uh, conditions. And this, well, what he says in this section about uh, equivalent and relevant and uh, relative forms is, you know, what I'm really trying to do is to explain what money does and where money comes from in a capitalist society. Now, there's an interesting discussion here about is this a historical argument or is it a logical argument? Uh, very often it's been read as a historical argument. I don't read it as historical. I don't think it stands muster when you look at uh, you know, what happened historically. But it's a very neat logical argument, which kind of says, in a capitalist society, if, if we're going to actually end up with a form of value expressed, it's going to have to be arrived at through a multiplicity of exchanges, and a multiplicity of exchanges that generates a universal equivalent, which is the money form. And that money form then becomes absolutely crucial for understanding how a capitalist system works. Now, the money form, as we will see, is an expression of value. It's an expression, but it's not a good expression. It has all kinds of problems with it, which we will get to uh, in a bit. But as, um, uh, as a form of uh, expression of value, it then actually creates certain contradictions within the system. And this leads Marx immediately into uh, saying, well, what, what's the main thing that happens once the society ha has an equivalent form of, of, of value, which is the money form? What does, this, what does this mean socially? And this leads him immediately into the idea of the fetishism of commodities that there are going to be social relations between things and material relations between persons. Now, 
This is a kind of a, if you like, the ultimate fetish is going to be the money form. Because people are going to, it's going to be fetish in, in, in all sorts of senses. People want it, need it, desire it, chase it, think about it, worry about it all of the time. But what is it? What is, and, and, and where does it come from? And why is it so significant? And Marx actually is, is what he's trying to do, is to get behind the idea of money as uh, somehow or other just simply real. It's a product of a process in which you are internalizing contradictions. Because what this means is commodity internalizes a contradiction. Value internalizes a contradiction. Exchange value, the form of exchange value, internalizes a contradiction. And that contradiction expresses itself in our society by this fetishism by which we don't actually trade each other's labor directly in any way we know. We do it through the money commodity. And the money commodity creates a mask, if you like, over our social relations. And that mask means that much of what is going on in our society is going to be not easily interpretable in terms of its surface appearance. For instance, we go into a supermarket and we buy commodities. When we get into the supermarket and buy the commodities, we know nothing about the people who have produced those commodities. And this is the disguise. But at the same time, there's the question of how much we have to pay for the commodity, how much money we need to buy. And that how much is a social relation, which again, we don't see directly and don't understand directly. So this leads Marx then into the study of this fetishism of commodities, which is actually this, at the center of all aspects of market exchange. The market exchange disguises social relations. We don't know from the market what it is that is happening to people who have produced things. We don't know from the market anything about the lives, anything necessarily about the labor process. This then leads into a discussion of market exchange and the conditions of market exchange, in which, in chapter two, Marx talks about the relationship between owners and non-owners, or between sellers and buyers. Now, here, I think, again, there's something that's important, and Marx has mentioned this before. Marx is always interested in roles, not in persons. And this is significant because, you know, people kind of say, well, you know, Marx kind of says everybody's a worker or so whatever. No, Marx says there is the role of worker. And somebody will be in that role part of the day, other part of the day, they may be in the role of proprietor. So that persons can actually fulfill many different roles. The analogy here would be, supposing you were doing a traffic study. And so you decided that, okay, we're going to look at the relationship between pedestrians and motorists. 
It's not as if there's this population over here of motorists and this population of uh, pedestrians. We're all of us at various times of being motorists or, or pedestrians. But you conduct an analysis of the relationships between you know, motorists and pedestrians, and according to their position, they will behave in very different ways. So when I'm a pedestrian, I'm usually you know, getting absolutely nutty as hell and crazy at motorists because they're disgusting, horrible people. When I get in my automobile, I get disgusted with pedestrians because they're constantly walking across the road when they shouldn't and all this kind of stuff. So the point, the point here is Marx is dealing with roles all the time. You've got to keep that always in your mind because then one of the criticisms of Marx is that he doesn't actually deal with the kind of the complexities of persons, and that's correct. He's doing an analysis of the sort of, of you know, pedestrians and motorists. So when he gets to capital and labor, again, it's the roles rather than the persons. And actually, in our society, we have very many different roles which we will play. Uh, but that, that doesn't mean that we can't actually talk about the, the very specific roles that, that Marx uh, is interested in. But in this chapter two, he's interested in the role of the buyer and of the seller, of the non-owner of the commodity and the owner of the commodity. Because in the trade, uh, you have something I want, that you have something I lack, I want what you have, you have to not want what you have in order to trade. So this is the, the relationship that he looks at. And out of this comes uh, the proliferation of exchange relations. And you can see one of the things that happens at, at the beginning of this analysis, Marx assumes that there's a fully-fledged capitalist society out there engaging in, in, in exchange. But what he's doing here is filling in that argument by kind of saying, as market systems proliferate, as they become more normalized, as they become, as exchange becomes a normal social act, so we will find emerging uh, the notion of money as a distinctive commodity, which is central to all of this. But money internalizes contradictions. So when you get to the next step, you say, well, the primary contradictions in the chapter on money are about money as a measure of value and money as a medium of circulation. Actually, it's more complicated than that, as we'll see. But out of these, again, you know, money has different roles to play. What is the most effective means by which those roles can be fulfilled in society? And so in the chapter on money, Marx will kind of say, look, if you're interested in something uh, which is uh, valuable and which can, uh, in which value can be saved, then you want, you want something that's pretty secure and which has secure measure. So in Marx's time, it would be gold. He would want gold as a, if you want to save things because you know, uh, it's, it's, it doesn't uh, disintegrate. I mean, if the money form was raspberries, imagine, I mean, you know. No, it's gold because gold uh, is uh, uh, you know, assailable and, and, and the qualities are known and you can measure it and all this kind of stuff. And it's, and it's very secure. On the other hand, gold is terrible as a means of circulation, as a medium of circulation. 
I mean, if every time I bought a cup of coffee, I had to find a little grain of gold, that would be a disaster. You know, we'd have to go around with pouches with little grains of gold and sort of, and in any case, you know, we'd spill some and, you know. So, so gold is, 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 is impossible. So one of the things that happens as a medium of circulation is that we start to get fiat monies, uh, state monies and coinage and all other kinds of other things, which work extremely well. But then that poses the problem, what's the relationship of all those fiat monies and dollars and all this kind of thing to gold? What, you know, so there's all these sort of issues which start to come up uh, in terms of what is world money. But world money can only be used if we get the roles of debtors and creditors. That the circulation of, of, of you know, complicated sort of buying and selling in, in always, always requires that somebody do it on tick and somebody do it, you know, with, with a bit of credit. That you haven't got the money right now, give me credit and I'll pay you back tomorrow, you know, those kinds of things, or three weeks or whatever, so that this then gives rise to the ro different roles of debtors and creditors which generates the question of capital, which then gives us a real problem because uh, the, the circulation of, uh, of, of, of money uh, and commodities in society uh, entails an exchange of equivalences, but nobody's going to actually engage in, in the production of commodities unless they can get surplus value, which is non-equivalent. So this raises, raises the question of, how do you solve this contradiction between uh, exchange equivalence and non-equivalence, which is entailed in profit? How does that how does that run resolved? Well, it's resolved because there is a commodity there that has the capacity to produce more value than it itself has, which is labor power. So the buying and selling of labor power then becomes the big kind of issue. And the big issue then, that leads you into immediately, well, this means there's a relationship between capital and labor. Notice the whole kind of question of the relationship between capital and labor comes at the end of this sequence, not at the beginning. I mean, when you get to about page 300 and you finally get capital and labor, you say, thank God, that's what I've been waiting for all the time, you know, how, how long did it take to get there? Which then, of course, puts us into the question of class struggle, but it's class struggle over surplus value production. And there are two forms of surplus value. Absolute surplus value, relative surplus value. I'm going beyond the diagram now. But at the end of the day, there's only one form of surplus value, which internalizes both the absolute and the relative. So about a third of capital is taken up with the study of relative surplus value. So my point here is that the whole design of Capital Volume 1, it's like you know, you're, in a, you're in a stream of, OK, there's a bifurcation. Use value, exchange value. Then there's a unity. Then there's a bifurcation. Then there's a unity. Then there's a bifurcation. Then there's a unity. And you just go on like this. And there's a certain structure to the argument. And it's very important to recognize where you are in the argument. You know, in reading Marx, there's a sort of, you know, woods for the trees problem all of the time. You get so complicated and it's often doing this and that, you forget exactly what the main structure of the argument is. But this is the basic outline of the argument. And you notice that it's an unfolding argument. It's not as if anything causes anything else. It's just that there's a contradiction that needs to be resolved. 
between use value and exchange value. How is it resolved? Well, it's resolved in the form of the value theory. Value internalizes a contradiction between the abstract and the concrete form of labor. That internalizes and then that comes together in the form that exchange value takes, which then leads you into this bifurcation between equivalent and relative forms of value, which then leads you to the money form. Okay, this is, this is, a, this is a, a dialectical unfolding, if you like, of the analysis. There's no causality here. It's not as if anything causes anything else. It's just that there are contradictions which have to be resolved. And the resolution of a contradiction internalizes the contradictions. And the internalization then gets externalized. So that Marx starts to talk about the way in which, well, at a certain point, the relationship between use value and exchange value gets externalized. So there is a representation of exchange value, which is money, which is an externalization of the contradiction, which is inherent in commodity exchange. So this flow of the argument, this dialectical flow, if you like, takes you right throughout capital up until sort of part seven, where Marx talks about, well, okay, what does this tell us about the laws of motion of, of capital itself? And I think it's useful to always bear this in mind because, as I've suggested, the, the, the problem frequently in reading this is you know, not knowing exactly where, where you are and what's, what's going on. And I find it very interesting that it's like you're in the flow of this argument. But Marx, it's, it's almost like you're in the, in, the, in the flow, but there are all these kinds of things which are to one side or the other. Um, it's a bit like you're in this sort of, you're, you're, you're going down this long corridor of an argument, but there are lots of rooms off this corridor and lots of doors that open up and you go in and look and say, well, what the hell's going on here? What's this got to do with the main argument? And well, you find it, it does have something to do, but it's also opening uh, certain issues which are actually going to be significant uh, in, in some other part of the text later on. And, and I, I kind of find it interesting to read it that way, that is to say, all right, where, are, where, where I'm in, uh, in the main argument, what door does he open here? What, what can I do with that door that opens? So frequently he just opens the door and says, take a look, and then he marches on. And what you have to do is then go through the door and then think about it more seriously. For example, the end of the very first section, as you recall, Marx kind of says, okay, I've been talking about socially necessary labor time. But socially necessary labor time doesn't exist unless there's, there's a market, unless there's a realization of the value. Now, Marx hasn't really talked about the market and the realization of value and the creation of wants, needs, and desires and all those sorts of things. He hasn't talked about that very much. He just said, well, I'm not really sort of interested in talking about that too much, but, you know, but right at the end of that first section, he kind of says the question of realization is important. And we can walk through that door and then kind of say, okay, let's look more closely at what goes on in the world of realization. Let's look at the production of new wants, needs, and desires. Let's look at uh, all of those things that need to, need to be there and need to happen in society 
in order that value which has been produced can be realized in the market. Let's, let's go through that door and take a good look. And the sort of thing I mean by this is in, in that, again, from sections first, you remember that he talks about the importance of, uh, of the productivity of labor in talking about the value theory. Uh, and he says on page 130, and I go back to this, the value of a commodity would therefore remain constant if the labor time required for its production also remained constant. But the latter changes with every variation in the productivity of labor. This is determined by a wide range of circumstances. It is determined, amongst other things, by the worker's average degree of skill, the level of development of science, and its technological application, social organization, the process of production, etc. This is him opening one of those doors and saying, you know, the question of the worker's skills and the degree of skill, the level of development of science and technological, uh, you know, is, is, is important in, in talking about what is socially necessary labor time. And it's important in the dual sense. First, it affects the particular value of the commodity. That is, a fixed amount of value can be associated with different quantities of use values. And there's going to be a discussion in here of the relationship between value and wealth. Wealth is about the total quantity of use values that you can command. How wealthy you are, as far as Marx's definition, is how much you can command in the realm of use values. And you can get a situation, which he describes later on, where the amount of value in society is going down, but the productivity of the labor is becoming so high that people are becoming immensely wealthy in terms of the use values that they command. So that the increase in wealth doesn't necessarily correspond to an increase in value. In fact, it may correspond to a decrease in value. Because, as he says, if, you know, 10 laborers can produce uh, 20 coats, as opposed to one coat, then there's 20 coats to go around with the same amount of value. So what he's talking about here is, is that phenomenon, but then also talking at the same time about the fact that value itself is not immune to being transformed through transformations in productivity. So what we're going to see in the theory of relative surplus value right towards the end of capital is a systematic way in which value relations are going to be transformed through the dynamics of technological change. So this is important. Now, I think when I look at this and I think, I think, well, are there examples I can use of this? And there's a neat e example that, that, that comes to mind. Apple computers. Steve Jobs, genius, as everybody will say. But Apple computers, as a company, was failing in the middle of the 1990s. It was crashing. Twice, Steve Jobs tried to set up a factory in Silicon Valley which would actually make the computers. But for some reason or other, they both failed. And the whole thing was coming apart until Steve Jobs hired Tim Cook, 
in, I think it was 1998 or something like that. And Cook came in and said, you know, you're looking in the wrong place. Cook said, let's go look uh, about these value chains which, are, which exist in Asia. Let's go and start using the Asiatic uh, production stu structures and see what goes on. And in 2004, basically, uh, around then, uh, Apple hooked up with Foxconn. And Foxconn, huge kind of organization, a Taiwanese firm operating in China, now employs 1.5 million people in China, produces about 40% of the world's computers and iPhones and all the rest of it. So Foxconn. So Tim Cook took Apple to Foxconn, and Apple revived and became the company it now is which is one of the, um, don't know, well, I don't have to tell you about that. Uh, but it's interesting what Tim Cook said about this. And, and, uh, and, and he, he, uh, he pointed out, he said, that uh, the shift to Asia cut costs and provided the enormous scale necessary to produce some of history's best-selling tech products. Now, Tim Cook himself tried to bring computer production back to Texas, Austin, Texas, in 2010, but that failed. There's an interesting question, why? And he said, well, the, the problem was that in Texas and in Silicon Valley, there was not the, the kind of labor which allow something like Foxconn to get set in motion. And Tim Cook said, no country, and certainly not the United States, can match China's combination of scale, skills, infrastructure, and cost. And he also said this. The skill, he said, in China is just incredible. Making Apple products requires state-of-the-art machines and lots of people who know how to run them. In the US, you could have a meeting of tooling engineers and I'm not sure we could fill the room. In China, you could fill multiple football fields. The kinds of labor power available in the United States were not suited or disciplined enough to do the monotonous but precise labor required for accurate computer assemblage. Now, in that other diagram I gave you, you remember I had this thing about the free gifts of labor, the free gifts of history of skill, and actually, Apple survived by moving to a place where it, it was able to jump on the free gifts via Foxconn, on the free gifts of labor. That there were lots of people there who knew how to tinker with production lines. I mean, if you have a production line, production line, or, you know, little things can go wrong. And if a little thing goes wrong at this point in the production line, the whole thing's guns up. You need really slick engineers to keep the, engine, the production line going. Those slick engineers do not exist in the United States. That's what Tim Cook was saying. That, on the other hand, they lift, they, 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 they exist uh, in abundance in China. And in fact, the one factory I went into, this was one of the ways in which people became upwardly mobile in the, in the, the somebody would be on a production line and they would show themselves skilled at doing engineering things and they would start to become the engineers on the production line. 
and the engineers on the production line are critical. Now, this is the sort of thing that Marx, I think, is talking about when he kind of says, when you look at the, how the value theory works, you have to understand that value theory is sensitive to all of these things. It's sensitive to environmental conditions, but it's also sensitive to the presence of certain skills which have been historically accumulated somehow or other. And those skills had been accumulated somehow or other in East Asia, and in particular in China. And that Apple could therefore actually create value and work extremely well on the value thing once it understood the value basis of the Chinese uh, political economic situation. Now, this is the sort of thing that leads me in, in, in the last book I did to start to talk about regional value regimes. There's no reason why value should just be singular. There are, in fact, different value regimes. And different value regimes can be exploited in differential ways. This is me going through this, this door of this little passage and saying, OK, when you have a situation of this kind, the free gifts of the cultural history and the, of the culture of labor and cultural skill in China, the free gifts were what allowed Apple to survive and go from a com company that was failing in the 1990s uh, to one of the biggest and, and richest com companies in the world. Now, this is what I mean by going through the doors and taking a good look around you. That, that this is, if you like, it's not inconsistent with the value theory. This is the important point. It's actually deeply consistent with the sort of thing that Marx is pointing to here, saying, well, okay, go look at all of this and then see what you find. And you find all kinds of questions. So the, the big question then arises, all right, what is the value regime in which we live? As opposed to the value regime which prevails in, say, East Asia, or which prevails in, in India or wherever. So that by regionalizing it, you can start to see that. But Marx himself is not interested in that. He's kind of interested in keeping on going down his particular thing. He says, all right, this is true, but the realization problem is there. I recognize this, but I'm going to go on to the main, uh, the main story. Now, the main story then, if we can pick it up, is that we move from the first section, which is just about use value and exchange value and, and value, and we look at the dual character of the labor and commodities. And we contrast concrete labor, which I don't think is a, a, a complicated kind of problem, uh, and that labor is uh, heterogeneous, uh, differs in order, genus, species, and variety, he says on, on, on page 132. Uh, and, and, and out of this comes at a certain point what he calls the, uh, the divisions of labor. Because, as he says at the bottom of 132, only the products of mutually independent acts of labor performed in isolation can confront each other as commodities. To sum up, then, the use value of every commodity contains useful labor. 
In a society whose products generally assume the form of commodities, this qualitative difference between the useful forms of labor, which are carried on independently and privately by individual producers, develops into a complex system, a social division of labor. And a very important little passage where he opens another door at the bottom of this, of this uh, bottom of 133. Labor then, as a creator of use values, as useful labor, is a condition of human existence which is independent of all forms of society. That is, it's not confined to capitalism. It's actually trans-historical. It is, he says, an eternal natural necessity which mediates the metabolism between man and nature and therefore human life itself. Use values like coats, linen, and etc. in short, the physical bodies of commodities, are combinations of two elements, the material provided by nature and labor. Now again, in the big diagram, I had this kind of thing about what's the relation to nature. Here's Marx opening the door to the metabolic relation to nature. Because he says, if we subtract the total amount of useful labor of different kinds which is contained in the coat, the linen, etc., a material substratum is always left. This substratum is furnished by nature without human intervention. Okay, this is the theory of the free gifts of nature. We've been talking just now about the human gifts, free gifts of human nature. This is the free gifts of nature. When man engages in production, he can only proceed as nature does herself. He can only change the form of the materials. Furthermore, going on to the next page, 134, even in this work of modification, he is constantly helped by natural forces. Labor is therefore not the only source of material wealth. Okay, this is Marx differentiating wealth from values. Labor is not therefore is therefore not the only source of material wealth, i.e., of the use values it produces. As William Petty says, labor is the father of material wealth, the earth is its mother. Gendered metaphor, and you can have all kinds of critiques of that if you want. But his point here is that wealth is very much dependent upon the productivity. And the productivity is dependent upon natural conditions. And the metabolic relation to nature, therefore, has to be studied in exactly the same way that I was talking about the, the social relation to nature. It needs to be studied. But then Marx goes on, let us now pass from the commodity as an object of utility to the value of commodities. In other words, half of yeah, a paragraph which raises the question of the metabolic relation to nature, says it's a universal condition, we should consider it, it's very important, but I'm on to other things. And, and again, you can criticize him for not taking enough time over the metabolic relation to nature here. On the other hand, you know, he, he has to make assumptions at various points. And he raises issues and then says, okay, I'm not going to deal with it further here. Um, again, he then starts to talk about the different qualities and, uh, of the labor involved in the concrete processes. And at the bottom of 134, he says, if we leave aside the determinate quality of productive activity and therefore the useful character of the labor, what remains is its quality 
of being an expenditure of human labor power. That is, of value. Tailoring and weaving, although they are qualitatively different productive activities, are both a productive expenditure of human brains, muscles, nerves, hands, etc., and in this sense, both human labor. They are merely two different forms of the expenditure of human labor power. Of course, human labor power must itself have attained a certain level of development. Here he goes back to what we've just talked about, which is the qualities of that labor power. Human labor power must itself have attained a certain level of development before it can be expended in this or that form. But the value of a commodity represents human labor, pure and simple, the expenditure of human labor in general. And he then goes on to kind of say, well, actually, when we look at the laborer, we see immediately that there are different qualities in the labor force. And he has a problem of what to do about skilled labor versus what he calls simple average labor. He says, simple average labor varies in character in different countries and at different cultural epochs. But in a particular society, it is given. This is again one of his tricks, which is to say, okay, it varies all over the place, but I'm going to assume it's fixed and given. But don't be misled by that, because it's not fixed and given in reality. For purposes of his investigation, he's going to treat it as fixed and given, which is okay with me. But don't assume that the conclusions he comes to are uh, therefore applicable uh, universally without recognizing that, in fact, simple average labor varies in character in different countries and at different cultural epochs, and that therefore that variation itself has to be taken into account. And he goes on then to say, we also have to deal with the problem of complex labor. And he says, well, the way I'm going to deal with this is that complex labor counts only as intensified or rather multiplied simple labor, so that a smaller quantity of complex labor is considered equal to a larger quantity of simple labor. This is what's called the reduction problem in Marx, that the reduction of skilled labor to simple labor can, in fact, be done. And he just says, I'm not going to deal with how it's done, because experience shows that this reduction is constantly being made. Well, I don't know what experience he's talking about, and he doesn't bother to tell us. But this is a matter of controversy. Is it reasonable? to take skilled labor and treat it simply as multiples of general, simple average labor. And he goes on the end of this paragraph, in the interest of simplification, we shall henceforth view every form of labor power directly as simple labor power. By this, we shall simply be saving ourselves the trouble of making the reduction. Well, that's a very neat way to go. Again, it's okay, but remember that, that he's done that. Because uh, there are a lot of problems which 
when you start to, to look at this, a lot of problems of this sort which arise out of this. And in fact, the China case, which I mentioned, is a very good example. It wasn't simply that the Foxconn engineering labor could be regarded as simple labor multiplied. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that they had skills which did not exist in Silicon Valley. In the same way that the population which was available to sit on you know, the production lines was not available in Silicon Valley either. So you couldn't set up the kind of Foxconn system in Silicon Valley. So these are the sorts of issues which, which this, this poses. But, okay, he's made this assumption. And I'm going to spend a lot of time, I think, in, in, in this class talking about his assumptions and, and, and making it not, not to diminish what Marx has done. Because actually, in some ways, I think it highlights his, his brilliance in being able to sort of, in his courage, and be able to say, all right, there's, I know there's a problem here, but I'm going to push this to one side because I want to get to an analysis which is going to be meaningful in some way of what the hell is going on in capitalist economy uh, uh, in general. Now, again, this quantitative, qualitative stuff and the relationship between value and wealth comes back when he says, at the bottom of 136, in itself, an increase in the quantity of use values constitutes an increase in material wealth. Two coats will clothe two men, one coat will only clothe one man. Nevertheless, an increase in the amount of material wealth may correspond to a simultaneously fall in the magnitude of its value. This contradictory movement arises out of the twofold character of labor. This is the internalization of the contradiction. That we can become wealthier at the same time as value gets reduced. This has, I think, incredible importance. If productivity raises things, you can give people the illusion that they're much better off because they have much more in the way of material goods than they had before. One of the big arguments that can be made about the situation in capitalist economies since, say, 1970s or so, is while the proportion of national uh, product which has gone to labor has been diminishing, the material wealth of working people has increased. In, in other words, the Walmart economy allows capital to pay lower wages at the same time as people feel they're better off because they can go to Walmart and buy more goods. So this is another interesting sort of angle that Marx has here. And a lot of people kind of, one of the things they will argue with you about, you kind of say, well, Marx kind of said that people will be super exploited and they'll be more and more exploited over time. Look at the standard of living of the mass of the population, it's far, far better than it was 50 years ago. 
And yes, in material wealth terms, it is better. But in value terms, it's much worse. So you can increase the rate of exploitation of labor, in Marx's definition of value terms, you can increase the rate of exploitation at the same time as workers can be made to feel better off because they have more access to material goods. This contradictory movement, he says, again, watch out for that contradictory movement. This is a very interesting idea. This contradictory movement because it's going on and has gone on in the history of capitalism very directly. It is true that the share of wages in national income has declined radically since the 19, 1970s. Not, not only in countries like you know, United States and, and Britain and, and Europe and so on. That's actually been the case in China. On the other hand, the Chinese population now has cell phones when it didn't have cell phones before. So this is, this is what we're looking at, this contradictory motion. So if you want to interpret what's going on around, be careful. And think about this contradictory motion. And when somebody kind of says to you, Marx is all wrong because he said you've got an increasing rate of exploitation of labor and clearly people are better off, you kind of say that's because you're not thinking about the relationship between value and wealth. So this is the second thing, when Marx is talking about concrete and abstract labor. But the, the results of concrete labor can be more positive and positive and positive, even as the results from the standpoint of abstract labor are less and less positive. So that contradictory relation between concrete and abstract is again something which we need to pay attention to. This then leads Marx into this long section on the value form or exchange value. The starting point of this is, I think, critically important and you should mark it well. This is on page 138. Commodities, he points out, and he's done it again and again, is are at the same time objects of utility and bearers of value. They are, have the form of commodities insofar as they possess a double form, a natural form and a value form. But, he then says this, not an atom of matter enters into the objectivity of commodities as values. In this, it is the direct opposite of the coarsely sensuous objectivity of commodities as physical objects. We may twist and turn a single commodity as we wish. It remains impossible to grasp it as a thing possessing value. However, let us remember that commodities possess an objective character as values only insofar as they are expressions of an identical social substance, human labor. That their objective character as values is therefore purely social. From this it follows self-evidently that it can only appear in the social relation between commodity and commodity. 
In fact, we started from exchange value or the exchange relation of commodities in order to track down the value that lay hidden within it. We must now return to this form of appearance and value. This is going to lead him, he says. Now, however, we have to perform a task never even attempted by bourgeois economics. He's very modest. <laughs> that is, we have to show the origin of the money form. We have to trace the development of the expression of value contained in the value relation of commodities from its simplest, almost imperceptible outline to the dazzling money form. When this has been done, the mystery of money will immediately disappear. Now, this little passage does a couple of things. First, it makes clear that value is a social relation, and as such, it is not an atom of matter enters into it. It is not material, physically material. It is historically material in terms of Marxist historical materialism, but it's not material. And it is therefore completely opposed to the coarsely sensuous objectivity of commodities as physical objects. It, therefore, what happens to value depends upon the social process that produces it. What is the social process that produces it? Well, we're going to look at that throughout the rest of capital. The social process that produces it in the first instance is the process of exchange. And that brings us into, immediately, the two poles of the expression of value, the relative form of value and the equivalent form. And we get into this long discussion of relative and equivalent forms, which uh, on page 139 uh, onwards, is about what happens when barter takes place and, uh, and, and the like. So I'm not going to go through that. Uh, but then what he does is to start to recognize that this relationship between relative and equivalent forms of value begins to reveal what it is that money is going to be about. Because money is going to be crystallized out, if you like, of the universal equivalent form of value. That uh, you start off with many, many different equivalents of many, many relatives, and then it gradually coalesces till, in the end, one or two commodities crystallize out uh, in the money form. But in so doing, we start to see a number of peculiarities. And on 148, he talks about the first peculiarity with this process that we're looking at. The first peculiarity which strikes us when we reflect on the equivalent form is this. That use value becomes the form of appearance of its opposite value. Gold, just to give an example, gold, is a particular commodity which is produced. It has a use value. But it is treated as a form of appearance of its opposite value. So that you need a use value to express value. And there's a simple reason for that, because if you don't have a material expression of value, 
value cannot appear on, on the political stage. The result of this is that the, the money commodity which is going to appear, and I'm jumping ahead in a sense, the money commodity which is going to appear is a, has a particular quality, which is a use value, but it's standing in, if you like, for the whole realm of human labor. which is something purely social. But this means, as he says on page 149, that this conceals a social relation. That the social relation of laboring suddenly disappears, right? And you're left with the gold, which is expressing that. Then this leads to a second peculiarity. The equivalent form therefore possesses a second peculiarity. In it, concrete labor becomes the form of manifestation of its opposite abstract human labor. That is, you're using the concrete labor involved in gold production as a standard, as if it represents abstract human labor. This is a big jump. And there is, he says, on top of 151, a third peculiarity. Private labor takes the form of its opposite, namely labor in its directly social form. That is, the personal private labor that goes into me digging out gold then takes the form of a representation of the social labor of the whole of humanity. Now, this is going to lead later on into, and he's going to come back to these three peculiarities, because they're very important. They explain why it is that money doesn't always do a good job of representing value. In fact, the very fact of this third peculiarity, private labor takes a form of its opposite, namely labor in its directly social form, gets reversed in the chapter of money, where money talks about the way in which social labor can be appropriated by private persons. Because if gold is representing social labor and I can appropriate the gold, then I have, in effect, appropriated the social labor indirectly. But I can't appropriate the social labor directly. The result is that actually this is the foundation of class formation. The private persons can actually appropriate social value. They can only do that because of the character of the equivalent form of value. So Marx is talking about the nature of the money which is going to come into being. And the nature of the money is it's going to be a representation of all human labor everywhere. And as such, I can't appropriate all human labor everywhere. 
and all of its product, I can, however, appropriate the gold, which measures that social length. So if I accumulate the gold, I can become a wealthy capitalist, because that gold is a claim upon human labor. But this can only happen because of this contradiction which exists, that you need a material representation of the social relation. And I, this then leads into a, an extremely interesting sort of passage, which you can play with, 151, where Marx talks about Aristotle, who talks about the fact <coughs> that there can be no ch exchange, this is the middle of 151, there can be no exchange without equality and no equality without commensurability. Aristotle, says Marx, couldn't get to a concept of value. Why not? Because Athenian society was based on slave labor. Therefore, there was no room for socially necessary labor time to play its role, and therefore, you're in a different kind of society. But he did understand about exchange, and that exchange, when it, it is becoming very general, is it, going to mean the exchange of equivalence. The social value that I'm exchanging with you is going to be equivalent to the social value you, you, you get from me. So that market exchange is actually going to be based on the question of equivalence, that like for like. So Marx has done this in terms of the simple form of, uh, of the relative uh, and uh, equivalent values. But then in section B on 154, he says, oh, total or expanded form. Then he goes on to various, to the and C on 157, the general form of value, where one commodity crystallizes out and it becomes the equivalent of all these other forms of commodity. Uh, and then Marx kind of says, so the expanded form of value comes into actual existence for the first time when a particular product of labor, such as cattle, is no longer exceptionally, but habitually exchanged for various other commodities. So the expanded form is taking place where value is beginning to crystallize out of a system of exchange. Finally, says on page 160, a particular kind of commodity acquires the form of universal equivalent because all other commodities make it the material embodiment of their uniform and universal form of value. So this is the crystallization out of the money commodity form. But that crystallization out and the money form, as he then goes on to say, but the antagonism between the relative form of value and the equivalent form, the two poles of the value form, also develops concomitantly with the development of the value form itself. That is, the contradiction starts to be internalized again. And finally, this leads into the analysis 162 on the money form. Now, 
this long thing about relative and exchange value is about trying to explain what the relationship is between the money form and the value form, in which the value form is about social labor, money is the expression or the representation of that value form. But as a representation, it has these peculiarities. And these peculiarities are very important because you should not say that there's some unproblematic relationship between the money form, because it internalizes all these peculiarities, between the money form and the value form. In fact, there's a contradictory, there's an antagonism between them. And we see the nature of those antagonisms. The private, the particular becomes the general. The private becomes the social and vice versa. The, the commodity, the use value, a use value becomes a representation of exchange value and value. And this contradictory form means that the whole of capitalism is based upon serious, contradictory forms within the very basis of the society in terms of money and the like. Which leads immediately then to say, for Marx to start to say, well, can't you see that this actually disguises, that money actually disguises the social relation that it represents? It represents it by disguising it. So we lose sight of the value relations. And this leads him into the discussion of the fetishism of commodities, which is interesting for a number of reasons. First thing, what, you, what you've seen in this chapter so far is three modes of expression of Marx. There's the analytical mode of expression, where Marx is dealing with concepts, use value, exchange value, value, this kind of stuff, analytic kind of stuff with a few examples. Uh, the accountant kind of linen and coats, which is kind of uh, written in a kind of style which is guaranteed to send you to sleep, or at least send me to sleep. The third one is the fetishism of commodities. The written style is completely different. Completely different. And then the very first start of the whole thing, a commodity appears at first sight as an extremely obvious, trivial thing. But his analysis brings out that it's a very strange thing, abounding in metaphysical subtleties and theological niceties. So far as there's a use value, there's nothing mysterious about it, whether we consider it from the point of view of that by its properties it satisfies human needs, or that it first takes on these properties as a product of human labor. It is absolutely clear that by its activity, man changes the forms of the materials of nature in such a way as to make them useful to him. The form of wood, for instance, is alterable if, the, if a table is made out of it. Nevertheless, the table continues to be wood, an ordinary sensuous thing. But as soon as it emerges as a commodity, it changes into a thing which transcends sensuousness. It not only stands with its feet on the ground, but in relation to all other commodities, it stands on its head and evolves out of its wooden brain grotesque ideas, far more wonderful than if it were to begin dancing of its own free will. And so he then goes on to the mystical character of commodities. And uh, yeah, and okay, it's about expenditure of human brain, nerves, muscles, and sense organs. Uh, 
but it's about the enigma and the enigmatic character of the product of labor and about the equal objectivity of the products of labor as values, but also what is the social relation between the products of labor. And this is where he defines the mysterious character of the commodity form consists therefore simply in the fact that the commodity reflects the social characteristics of men's own labor as objective characteristics of the products of the labor themselves, as the socio-natural properties of these things. Hence, it also reflects the social relation of the producers to the sum total of labor as a social relation between objects. Through this substitution, the products of labor become commodities, sensuous things, which are at the same time supersensible or social. In the same way, the impression made by a thing on the optic nerve is perceived not as a subjective excitation of that nerve, but as the objective form of a thing outside the eye. In the act of seeing, of course, light is really transmitted from one thing as an external object to another thing, the eye. It is a physical relation between physical things. As against this, the commodity form and the value relation of the products of labor within which it appears have absolutely no connection with the physical nature of the commodity and the material relations arising out of this. It is nothing but the definite social relation between men themselves, which assumes here for them the fantastic form of a relation between things. I call this the fetishism, which attaches itself to the products of labor as soon as they are produced as commodities, and is therefore inseparable from the production of commodities. Now, this notion of fetishism, sometimes people reading Capital think fetishism is a bit of an extraneous, you know, Marx just felt like being poetic for a bit, and, you know, wanted to talk about werewolves and things like that. I think it's foundational for reading Capital. But fetishism is the disguise, the mask, which we have to get behind. And what Marx is trying to do in Capital is to get behind the fetishistic representation of the world, which comes out from a naturalistic approach to that world. In other words, Marx is not saying that the fetishism of commodities is based on a lie. No, he says this. The labor of the private individual manifests itself as an element of the total labor of society only through the relations which the act of exchange establishes between the products and through their mediation between the producers. To the producers, therefore, the social relations between their private labors appears as what they are. This is the crucial thing. It appears as what they are. They do not appear as direct social relations between persons in their work, but rather as material relations between persons and social relations between things. When I go into the act of exchange, I'm more concerned with the objects being exchanged, not with the person doing the exchanging. In a complicated exchange society, that is all we can do. As he says, it is only by being exchanged that the products of labor acquire a socially uniform objectivity as values, which is distinct from their sensually varied objectivity as articles of utility. Now, I think this is a kind of very interesting way of looking at things. 
What it says is that value gets hidden. The nature of the social labor disappears. And it becomes represented by an exchange of two objects. Marx is interested in the social relation, not in the objects. He's going to criticize conventional economics because he's concerned with the objects, not with the social relations. Conventional economics ignores the social relations, just says, give me the objects and the let's look at the way in which objects get traded. Men do not bring the products of their labor into relation with each other as values because they see these objects merely as the material integuments of, integuments of homogeneous human labor. So the reverse is true. By equating their different products to each other in exchange as values, they equate their different kinds of labor as human labor. They do this without being aware of it. Value, therefore, does not have its description branded on its forehead. It rather transforms every product of labor into a social hieroglyphic. Later on, men try to decipher the hieroglyphic, to get behind the secret of their own social product. For the characteristic which object, objects of utility have of being values is as much men's social product as is their language. The belated scientific discovery that the products of labor, insofar as they are values, are merely the material expressions of the human labor expended to produce them, marks an epoch in the history of mankind's development. But it by no means banishes the semblance of objectivity possessed by the social characteristics of labor. He then goes on to point out that as soon as the proportions have attained a certain customary stability, they appear to result from the nature of the products. So that, for instance, one ton of iron and two ounces of gold appear to be equal in value, in the same way as a pound of gold and a pound of iron are equal in weight. The value character of the products of labor becomes firmly established only when they act as magnitudes of value. These magnitudes vary continually, independently of the will, foreknowledge, and actions of the exchangers. Their own movement within society has for them the form of a movement made by things. And these things, far from being under their control, in fact, control them. Okay, let's reflect a little bit on this, because this is a critical point in Marx's thinking. If you believe in individual liberty and freedom, like I do, then you would be drawn to the Hayek notion that individual liberty and freedom is the way, is the maximum that we should be looking for in terms of creation of a social order. The libertarians would say the same. The right wing will say, I actually think that's a noble vision, individual liberty and freedom. Marx is actually interested in individual liberty and freedom. What he's saying here is individual liberty and freedom within a market system where you are not in control is not individual liberty and freedom. In fact, it's slavery to the logic of the system. That's what he's saying here. And so that all of liberal theory is based, it's a con job. 
all of Hayek and everything else is a con job because basically he says, I believe in individual liberty and freedom, and I say, yeah, I do too. The best way to preserve it, he says, is by a system based of market exchange based on private property relations. Marx says, that's the way to slavery. You become a slave of market forces. And this is his first go at this. This is going to be a continuous theme to here, right? Their own movement within society. That is, the producers. Has for them the form of a movement made by things. And these things, far from being under their control, in fact control them. We are controlled by market forces. What we can do is restricted and constrained by market forces. And Marx is saying that is not freedom. The liberal theory of freedom is fine in itself, but when it kind of says the mechanism by which this can be served is by private property rights, free markets, and free trade. It's bullshit. That's basically what Marx is saying. Now, he's going to come up with this several times, and I think you, you, should, you should watch for it. This is, the, this is the heart of his beginning critique of bourgeois political economy. That by, con by concentrating on trading of things rather than asking questions about social relations, <coughs> By doing that, it, it actually masks. Go back to the example I was using earlier about Foxconn. 40% of the world's computers and iPhones and the rest of it are made by Foxconn. What do you know or we know about what it's like to work in Foxconn? What are the social relations behind the market that is producing this stuff? In 2010, 2011, about 17 suicides of workers in Boxcon. And there was a, you know, this got out, and so immediately there was a little flurry of kind of, oh, we should try and monitor better the labor conditions in Foxconn and all the rest of it. Uh, the response the response of Foxconn was to buy uh, thousands and thousands of miles of netting, which they strung around between dormitories so nobody could fall to the ground. They threw themselves off the balconies, which was what they were beginning to do. Marx is interested in the social relations, okay. And he's always going to be interested in the social relations. But he said what, what the fetishism of commodities does is to mask all of that. And all the data we have about, you know, labor inputs in Foxconn and profitability of Foxconn and profitability of Apple and all this kind of stuff, you know, all of that is one set of things. That's, that's the kind of way in which we understand the world. We understand the world through the material exchange of objects, not in terms of the social relations that lie behind. So this is what Marx is doing here in the fetishism of commodities. The reason, he says, that much of the thing that these things happen 
the midst of accidental and ever-fluctuating exchange relations between the products, the labor time socially necessary to produce them asserts itself as a, regulatory, a regulative law of nature. When Marx uses, I've mentioned this before, a term like regulative law of nature, it's not nature out there, it's capital's nature. It's a regulative law of capital's nature. The capital as a system has a regulative law, and that law, regulative law is the law of value. So that the law of value is what dictates. Now, what is it that dictates labor conditions inside of Foxconn? When China joined the world system, it had to actually obey, obey the regulative law of capital's nature. Again, didn't have a choice. The idea that the Chinese could have come in and said, oh, well, we're not going to obey the, the capitalist law, regulative law of nature. We're going to intervene in the capitalist system and we're going to change it to a socialist law of something. Forget it. In other words, the Chinese government did not have any choice. If it was going to participate in the global economy, it had to behave according to this regulative law of nature. Maybe they understood that, maybe they didn't. I always kind of wish I had the chance to go and sit down at Deng Xiaoping and say, did you ever read this stuff? <laughs> did you realize that what you were doing when you took China into the world market that you're going to have to obey the regulated law of nature and the regulated law of nature was such that it would produce exactly the kind of work and conditions you would find in Foxconn? Did you know they were going to do that to your population? Did you recognize that? Or did you, you know, say, yeah, I recognize that. But the one great thing that's going to come out of this is an incredible increase in material wealth. So that everybody inside of Shenzhen compound where, you know, 200,000 people are employed by Foxconn in one factory. Some people say it's 400,000. they at least all have cell phones. They have material wealth, which they didn't have before. Is that contradictory relation what you're going to play with? Are you going to say this contradictory relation is such that? Uh, these are the sorts of things that, that, that are opposed by this. And, and actually then what Marx then kind of says, uh, that this thing is this, this fetishism is actually embedded in material practices. It's not a fantasy. So the fetishism is not a fantasy, it's real. And it's real because it's based upon commodity exchange. And commodity exchange is real. And as commodity exchange and the money form and the general equivalent arise, then these are the kinds of situations in which social relations get disguised in exchange of things. Now, one of the ways in which we can attack this is then actually to create a science which gets behind this. But Marx says, well, the problem is that in the realm of thought, we've actually replicated the fetishism. The whole of bourgeois economics is fetishistic, which is, doesn't mean it's wrong. Again, doesn't mean it's wrong. It's right. Because 
It studies the exchanges and maps the exchanges, but it just ignores and masks all the social relations. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting if your 101 course in economics started with the concept of fetishism and social relations? Can you imagine? God, all those professors would freak out. But then Marx kind of says, but actually, you know, it's helpful here to reflect on other kinds of societies which, where these disguises don't exist. That is, non-commodity exchanging societies. So he says, reflection on the forms of life, of human life, hence also scientific analysis of these forms, takes a course directly opposite to their real development. Reflection begins after the feast and therefore with the results of the process of development ready to hand. The forms which stamp products as commodities and which are therefore the preliminary requirements for the circulation of commodities already possess the fixed quality of natural forms of social life. Consequently, it was solely the analysis of the prices of commodities which led to the determination of the magnitude and value, and solely the common expression of all commodities in money which led to the establishment of their character as values. This is what bourgeois political economy does. It is, however, precisely this finished form of the world of commodities, the money form, which conceals the social character of private labor and the social relations between the individual workers by making these relations appear as relations between material objects instead of revealing them plainly. The categories of bourgeois economics consist precisely of forms of this kind. They are forms of thought which are socially valid and therefore objective. For the relations of production belonging to this historically determined mode of social production, i.e. commodity production. The whole mystery of commodities and all the magic and necromancy which surrounds the products of labor on the basis of commodity production vanishes therefore as soon as we come to other forms of production. And he then gets into how the capitalists like to, bourgeois political economy, love to use the Robinson Crusoe stories. So, and several times Marx comes back to this. That, and, and, and Marx is kind of, uh, you know, okay, Robinson's there and he starts to come up with a rational way to organize his life. Uh, and, and he says, necessity itself compels him to divide his time with precision between his different functions whether one function occupies a greater space in its total activity than another depends on the magnitude of the difficulties to be overcome in attaining the useful effect aim at. Our friend Robinson Crusoe learns this by experience, and having saved a watch, ledger, ink, and pen from a shipwreck, he soon begins, like a good Englishman, to keep a set of books. His stock book contains a catalogue, you know, <laughs> and in fact, you know, Robinson Crusoe deals with this situation by going to double entry bookkeeping uh, and, and then starts to organize everything. Uh, and, and, and Marx is mocking this and kind of saying, you know, uh, Defoe gave you, got the ideas of the capitalist economy and then implanted them uh, in, in, in Robinson's mind and then Robinson put them on a desert island. Then what happens is the classical political economists come along with the story and said, if an economy was invented on a, this uh, desert island, we would get what Robinson Crusoe did, you know, and therefore it's this way of naturalizing all of political economy by kind of saying this is what any rational person would, 
would do. So Marx kind of mocks that and then goes on to say, well, we can look at other things too. Let's look at uh, uh, medieval Europe. And he talks about personal dependence and corvée and serfdom and all this kind of stuff. The point there is that the disguise doesn't, doesn't exist. Peasants know perfectly well who's exploiting them. They know perfectly how much of their labor is being taken by the Lord and how much of their product is being taken by the Lord. In other words, everything is transparent. Uh, and then Marx goes on to say, well, there also we can look at a, a patriarchal rural industry of a peasant family that produces corn, cattle, yarn, and clothing for its own use. Again, a lot of this is transparent in that sort of situation. And then he kind of gives, and this is kind of interesting, let us finally imagine for a change an association of free men, working with the means of production held in common and expending their many different forms of labor power in full self-awareness as one single social labor force. All the characteristics of Robinson's labor are repeated here, but with the difference that they are social instead of individual. This is one of the few places where Marx talks about the alternative. Again, it's a situation in which the fetishism has disappeared, alienation has been reversed, and he says, the social relations of the individual producers, both towards their labor and the products of their labor, are here transparent in their simplicity, in production, as well in distribution. And then there's kind of some stuff about how uh, he, he, he does some sort of parallels with religious beliefs, which are also fetishistic in his view. And um, and, politi and, and political, and, and then some of the ideas in political economy. Very important on 174, 175, a long, long footnote. Sometimes Marx does a lot of work in footnotes. And these footnotes are very significant. Uh, about the middle of footnote 34, the value form of the product of labor is the most abstract, but also the most universal form of the bourgeois mode of production. And what Marx has done here is essentially to say that the value form is a product of a capitalist mode of production which has been historically constructed. If we want to create a socialist mode of production, then we have to destroy that value form. And I think this is terribly important to understand. Uh, there have been times when people have taken Mark, the value theory as a norm which should be reconstructed. In fact, in Soviet planning, value theory was often used in terms of labor inputs as a planning device. Marx would mock that in the same way he mocks uh, uh, Proudhon uh, by kind of saying that uh, actually what he does is to take the idea, which is a capitalistic idea, and then utilize it to create a society as if it's socialist. And in fact, all you're doing is really replicating the social relations of capitalism on a different scale uh, through a different mechanism. So the, this is a... This is, this is, if you like, where the fetishism of commodities is a very important, uh, uh, ex extremely, ex extremely important to look at and, and important to understand and to think about in terms of what, of what it means uh, for, uh, for, for how to understand Marx's critique of, of capitalism. 
So when you go when you go back at it and you think, well, okay, what we have going here are a couple of things. One is that the, the social relations, uh, which are crucial in, in Marx and throughout all of Marx's work, I would think there's a prioritization of social relations. And then as you go on, uh, you start to see that these get disguised by a market exchange. And that market exchange takes away the possibility of real individual liberty and freedom by submersing it, uh, by this, its submersion within a market exchange structure, which is by definition fetishistic. And that accounts of that market exchange structure, which are given to us by bourgeois economics, are profoundly misleading and are fetishistic in the extreme, and that therefore we have to reconstruct an alternative social order by thinking about alternative social relations. That is, if we look at something like a Foxconn, the question would be, well, okay, how do we create alternative social relations, uh, where, which, which is outside of the regulative norm of the theory of value as it emerges within the capitalist society. What we're dealing with here is the emergence of value as a regulatory norm a regulatory norm which is embedded in the social relations of capital. And we're not finished with that embedding yet. We've got other places to go, but this is the first step uh, towards that. Now, I could go on to the next chapter, but I think I'm going to stop here because maybe there's some discussion or questions that people want to, uh, want to throw out about uh, this, this form of argument. Remember, we need to take the for uh, purposes of discussion, need to take the uh, microphone. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to read one question from our viewers online. This is from Lily. Uh, regarding Marx's comments on Aristotle's inability to theorize value because of Athenian society's basis in slave labor, how do these remarks square with the co-emergence of capitalism and the global slave trade? specifically with American capitalism's relationship to slavery? Uh, I, think it's, I think it's important to uh, recognize that Marx is dealing with a theory of a capitalist mode of production. Uh, he's not uh, dealing with the, the full transition uh, from feudalism to capitalism nor is he dealing with the whole murky history of the rise of capitalism. I think Marx's argument about uh, slavery uh, is, and it does come up in capital at various points, but in a perfectly functioning capitalist mode of production, slavery does not exist. Wage labor uh, is the form of slavery uh, as far as Marx is concerned. But Marx recognizes that there are hybrid situations in which the capitalist mode of production coexists with other modes of production. And certainly in the 19th century, uh, there were complicated relationships between uh, the mode of production, in, and Marx deals with this in India and deals with it uh, to some degree in other parts of the world, uh, in which uh, the co different modes of production coexist. Uh, when Marx talks in this theory of fetishism about, for example, peasant societies, 
patriarchal peasant societies, which have a different mode of production. The capitalist talking about, you know, uh, a world in which you can see the social relations and you can clearly see the forms of exploitation. <clears throat> At various points, he does talk about uh, the relationship between slavery uh, and uh, wage labor as it coexisted in the 19th century. Uh, but his main aim in capital, and this is not the, the central point, well, you know, is, is not to actually try and create a theory of the uh, history of the capitalist mode of production, uh, but to actually talk about a mode of production in its pure state, a pure capitalist mode of production. So it's an imaginary exercise based on historical materialist abstractions to try to understand the nature of a capitalist mode of production. And I use that word nature advisedly. How does a capitalist mode of production work? And part of the reason for doing this is, is, is polemical and political. Because in the time that Marx was writing, there was a great deal of uh, bourgeois utopianism around. And a lot of the political economists were saying, imagine we had a perfectly functioning uh, capitalist economy with a perfectly functioning market. Imagine we had that. Wouldn't the world be a better place? And what Adam Smith and Ricardo and the others tried to argue was, yeah, it would be a much better place uh, than with monopoly power, feudalism, or slavery, and all those kinds of things. So there was uh, a utopian vision, a bourgeois utopian vision, of what pure capitalism would look like, perfect functioning markets and all the rest of it. Um, what Marx does is to say, uh, okay, I'm going to accept that uh, utopian vision and then show you it's not utopian, it's dystopian. And we're beginning to see his undermining of that vision, vision as dystopian in these passages, which I mentioned about, we've, we've already come across, which says that, uh, ah, you think you're free under capitalism, but you're not. Uh, you have a different kind of slavery, and what, what capital does is to try to say, this is not... Wage slavery is, 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 is somehow or other non-existent. So he's not um, trying to write the history of capitalism. He's trying to write a theory of capital as a mode of production. Hi. Yes. Sorry, my voice is a little hoarse. Uh, you mentioned a little while ago that Marx uses his interpretation of fetishism and applies it to religion. I would like just like a little more elaboration on how you perceive this fetishism and its application. Yeah, the, the, you know, Marx was uh, uh, antagonistic to religion uh, and saw it as a calls it the opiate of the people and has those kind of comments to make about it. Um, I think that we, we should be, you know, I, I don't think, however, you know, by looking at Marx's writings, I would not say he, he is not, uh, um, how should we put it, spiritual in various ways and, 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 and uh, full of uh, moral fervor and, 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 and the like, so he has plenty of that. Um, what he's dealing with, of course, uh, in, in, in his time was very much the power of organized religion. Uh, 
And at that time, uh, there was uh, almost no hope, I think, in anybody's mind in Europe that the papacy could be a progressive uh, institution. And that therefore, uh, he saw it as uh, part and parcel of, a, of a, both a feudal and then a bourgeois uh, order that was uh, uh, telling people kind of lies and fear and all the rest of it as means of social control. So he, he clearly thought part of his mission was, insofar as he makes remarks about religion, is to release people from, uh, from that fear and release people from uh, certain forms of teaching which he found to be very, uh, very oppressive. Uh, how do I see it? Uh, well, one of the things that uh, uh, I had to say when I first came to the United States, being a kind of a rather atheistic English guy, I got very, had a lot of difficulty adapting to the fact that a lot of the social action in Baltimore and so on was organized through the, through the churches. And in fact, uh, in the 1960s, 1970s, uh, the Quaker movement, for example, was taking the lead in a lot of the anti-war movement. Uh, the philosophy of liberation was very strong. I had long conversations with uh, priests in Central America who were uh, actually gave me lectures about Lenin and liberation and things like that. And uh, clearly, uh, I take the view now that uh, you know, I don't think that religion is by definition right-wing or left-wing. It depends upon the organized forms that it's taking in terms of uh, what, it, what it is about. And I learned uh, through Central America and through action in Baltimore to work a lot with uh, religious uh, groups who were, were in some ways, I think, uh, more in advance and took up the fetishism of commodities, I think, and, um, very, very clearly, and, and <clears throat> read Marx. And I was in a news conference in uh, San Jose in Costa Rica when Ernesto Cardinal happened to be there, and he was asked by, um, by American journalists, you know, and how come you're, you're a communist and preach communism, and here you are, you know, a, a famous priest, and and uh, it was kind of wonderful, actually, because all of the, everybody was very kind of concerned about how he'd answer that. And he just, he just said, well, I just read the Bible. <laughs> and it shut everybody up, and, all, and all, all the reporters didn't know what to say, except, um, you know, left, left, him, left him alone. So I, I think that, to me anyway, there are, there are many arenas of that kind where I would, I would take a different view than that which is espoused in, 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 in Capital, where Marx treats it always as organized religion, which is about the mobilization of vehicles of oppression uh, and the like. So my question really is uh, around how folks who wrote after Marx, but essentially took all of his writing primarily in, I guess, fields of philosophy, anthropology, and sociology kind of take or morph the idea of the fetish into maybe like something like misrecognition of social relations. So I'm curious 
if and and this I think is related to the question of that was asked right before this one is like like how has the Marx's idea of f- fetishization of commodities kind of like been morphed into how like either we as humans fetishize our social relations or misrecognize it as something else or are completely blind to um, how our relationship with each other is kind of um, mediated by things. Well, I mean, it's, I just, I just find sort of reading the text, I mean, I'm reading the text and I kind of go, I, I, I read a lot of things that Marx is supposed to have said and, and, and a lot of writing in the Marxist tradition that I find myself at odds with. Um, because it's, it's, it's far more than misrecognition. It's, uh, it's yeah, there's misrecognition going on in terms of our own relations and our own social relations with the world, uh, which are mediated through things. I mean, my relationship to Foxconn is primarily by the fact that I have a computer. Uh, and, and uh, you know, and then I can kind of read a bit and then kind of go, oh, oh my God, you mean to say my computer was produced in this kind of way? But after a bit, I find everything I, I, I eat, everything I do, you know, pretty soon. So it's not a matter of feeling guilty for all of these things. It's a matter of having an analysis and, and helping to then uh, say, well, how do we get ourselves out of this regulatory scheme which has been instantiated within the economic system? And it's not a matter of personal choice. Uh, when I mentioned, you know, like fantasizing having a conversation with Deng Xiaoping about, you know, has he read this? Uh, I think uh, the answer I, w- I might expect would be, yes, I've read it. I know perfectly well that this is what, but this is what we have to go through to deal with the rising, the increasing the productivity of labor. And the only way we can do that is by market competition and by opening up market competition. I know that we're going to create alienation. I know we're going to create inequality. I know we're going to create exploitation. And then the question arises, well, all right, having done that, how can you still justify what it is you're doing? And so uh, the CP in China sort of says it wants to be a socialist society by 2050. And it's going through this in order to get to a point where it can be a fully socialist society. I mean, that's the argument is being made. Whether you believe it or not is another question. But, but I think that uh, the, the, the question of the fetishism uh, is something that needs, needs to be sort of uh, discussed. And, and, and I think, uh, uh, you know, read carefully. So what I'm in effect, you know, I have my own way of thinking about it. I'm not necessarily the right way. And I think you all should read this and think about it and think about what it means. Uh, and what it means in relationship to uh, the, the ongoing critique throughout capital of the bourgeois conception of the world, which pretends that there's liberty and freedom that can be achieved through a system which denies liberty and freedom. 
And one of the things that draws, drew me to Marx is, was, was simply that, that, you know, I've been around long enough to hear in the 1960s and then again in the 1970s that the, the way in which uh, global poverty would be eliminated would be by capitalist form of economic development. And by unleashing the powers of capital and unleashing the powers of market exchange and so on, you would, you would create a world that would be much, much better. Now, in some respects, that has been true. If you look at life expectancy globally, it's better now than it's been a long, long time. Uh, and this is, uh, this is significant. But uh, I sort of got uh, very turned off by the fact that I keep on being told that the best way to deal with poverty and all the rest of it and alienation and so on is to unleash the powers of the market and that uh, the people who stop it like socialists and so on are against you know and it seems to me it's the other way around that unleashing the powers of the market actually creates inequality as we've seen uh, have abundant evidence of it and that, uh, therefore, the, the politics have to be changed, but the politics have to be based on a different understanding. And I don't think, uh, for instance, contemporary socialists, or so-called socialists in the United States, understand that very well. Um, I, I personally think that what happened around Amazon was not a good thing. Should have got Amazon in here and made it sink its capital here and then gnawed it to death, you know. I mean, that's what we should have done. Instead, it's going elsewhere. And it's unaffected entirely by, by this. Amazon is hardly, you know, you know, the idea that somehow or other Amazon has been denied a feast. Forget it. Amazon's going to have a feast anyway. Uh, so we should have uh, had a much more sophisticated approach to my view, and of course this is a, not a very popular view around New York right now, so, uh, but, but I think it's, uh, you know, again, the fetish to me is a very important way of, uh, of, uh, of uh, starting to think about uh, the question of uh, social relations and whether, when, in what ways we can move towards uh, transformations of social relations and my only experience uh, such as it is politically is that politically if you can't change the social relations you can't change anything but at the end of the day it's the social relations that really matter and i think there are movements of course to change social relations and i think that you know the, that is a very very profound aspect of our own times that there are feminist movements and gender movements and the like that are trying to tra change social relations. But without changing the, the nature of capital, you can only get so far, which is one of the reasons I think that you know, at some point or other to change social relations, you have to be prepared to confront the social relations that are embedded within the capitalist mode of production. And that is what Marx is trying to point out here is what those social relations necessarily are. And so what it is about the regulatory norm of capital 
that he's beginning to get to here, that regulatory norm, which is going to explain why things like Foxconn are not only going to happen, but will necessarily happen within a capitalist mode of production. And so that seems to me to be the, the, the way I would want to go. But again, you know, probably the many of you would have different views, which is fine. I mean, I think that, 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 that my, my reading of this is it has a very particular form. We have uh, two more questions, but before we go to those, would you mind, Professor Harvey, announcing next week's reading for those who have to leave? Yes. Uh, we want to do uh, chapter two and get as far as we can in chapter three, which is the chapter on money. I'd like to do all of it if I could. And I want to uh, do a warning here. Chapter three on money uh, is the place where almost everybody who starts capital gives up. Um, it's really rough, um, really hard going, um, but it's very important. So my, my, don't give up. This is one of the big things. It gets better after chapter three, much better. Chapter four, five, and six are dream after chapter three. Chapter three is, is complicated, messy, because you're dealing with a very complicated kind of question and Marx doesn't deal with it in, in you know, quite the, the best way that he could have uh, done. Uh, so just don't get too discouraged. Do what you can in chapter three and we'll whiz through it, sort of hold our breaths and come out the other side and get into the real stuff, which really starts in chapter four, five and six. But we'll try and do as much as we can in chapter three. We probably won't finish it, but let's see, let's see if we can get through. Chapter two is okay, it's fairly easy. Chapter three is a problem. Um, I, have a, um, I have a question about um, a small fragment on page 153. I'm just going to read it very quickly. It's at the very end of the first paragraph. It's literally the last sentence of the first paragraph on chapter 153, and it reads, the Scotsman McLeod, whose function it is to trick out the confused ideas of Lombard Street in the most learned finery, is a successful cross between the super superstitious mercantilists and the enlightened peddlers of free trade. And I'm wondering, what did Marx mean, or what did this mean, uh, enlightened peddlers of free trade, at the time of the composure of this text? Oh, enlightened peddlers of free trade. I, I mean, I suppose we would say uh, Adam Smith, but uh, actually, um, in Marx's time, uh, there was something called the Manchester School of free traders who were into uh, free trade in, in, in everything. They're the industrialists who were in favor of free trade. and. So he's really talking about uh, this relationship between mercantilists and free trade. If you want a good example of the combination of mercantilism and free trade right now, I guess you would look at Germany, which is uh, all about free trade up to a level, but it's mercantilist in the sense that it always wants to have positive balance of payments and uh, therefore wants to accumulate uh, wealth uh, internally and uses 
um, of free trade, and in fact uses the European Union as a vehicle of free trade in the global economy to, uh, uh, to accumulate its wealth. So this is, uh, I don't know much about McLeod. And there's a bit of a footnote there. Um, so I don't, you know, Marx often is, is referring to figures of various kinds. I have no idea who they are. And, 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 and so on. Uh, thank you for the lecture. Um, so uh, I'm really interested in the idea you briefly brought up about um, the diversity of value regimes. And I was hoping you could expand a little bit about it. And uh, so my question is, does the globalized economy constituted by this diversity of value regimes uh, constitute in itself a universal uh, value regime? I mean, does the division of labor among populations uh, in terms of distributing uh, um, different modes of production and consumption and so on constitute an hegemonic universal value regime? Or do these, uh, and which is expressive in itself of globalized social relations and globalized uh, relations of exploitation? Or do, do these regimes, in fact, uh, reproduce one another uh, through their relations with one another. And does this have uh, aim with uh, Marx's argument about primitive accumulation? Thank you. Oh. Well, the uh, Marx uh, in capital uh, will say from time to time that uh, value, value regimes differ this place to that place, like he did in that brief thing. And there are a couple more. We'll see some occasions next week where he does the same sort of thing. Um, but he tends to say, OK, I'm going to assume that there's only one value regime. And that value regime is what? One that's established on the world market. Now, in the, if you read from the Communist Manifesto to uh, capital and other writings, Marx tended to take the view that it was the destiny of the bourgeoisie to create the world market. They had no option except to create a world market. And that everything we've seen since Marx's time would confirm that, yeah, that's pretty much what the bourgeois has been up to, to the point where we've now created the world market. But that world market is in my view, disaggregated, and Marx concedes it could be, but doesn't study what would happen. And look, except in a couple of instances where he talks about trade between uh, different nations who have different uh, value relations, uh, in which uh, actually free trade between a capital-intensive nation and a labor-intensive nation will transfer value from the labor-intensive nation to the capital-intensive nation. So he, he talks about the benefits of world of free trade will always flow to the capital-intensive nation. And it's always interesting that the capital-intensive nation always preaches the superiority of free trade. Uh, it's only when they become troubled in some way or other, they suddenly start turning around saying, no, 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 we don't really mean that sort of free trade. We mean something else. Whether that's going on with Trump or not is another interesting question. I don't think it's actually true. 
of the, of the United States. So you get different things about that. Now, I, the way I look at it in the, in, in the contemporary situation is you see in the actual attempts, political attempts, to create value regimes. I mean, what is the European Union if it's not the fusion of the many national economies into a supposedly coherent value regime? In fact, it was a value regime that was very badly designed because it led to the transfer of value from the labor-intensive south to the capital-intensive north. So, and then, but then you look at what was NAFTA. What was a Trans-Pacific Agreement designed to do? In other words, everybody's going around trying to create. Now, a value regime is, given the way in which capital moves, it's always poorer. So there's export of capital and so on. And what you see in, in the, the Foxconn story I told was that Apple was trying to create production in a value regime that was unsuited uh, to what it wanted to do. It couldn't do it in the United States. I mean, could you imagine North American labor sort of sitting in those factories for, you know, 12 hours a day doing that? Forget it. Um, so, so the value regime in, in the United States was not, not adequate to what value required, what Apple required. So, so Apple got hold of Foxconn and said, OK, you do the manufacturing and you, you, you use your value regime. So there's all sorts of things like, like this. But it's clear that the Chinese value regime is radically different. Even, even interestingly, uh, on, on the gender question, it was very, there's a very interesting book by uh, C.K. Lee about um, uh, Hong Kong. Now, Hong Kong had already developed uh, a, a value regime, if you want to call it that, that challenged British uh, textile clothing production. So that even before, you know, there was any kind of merger of Hong Kong into the China, even before that, China, Hong Kong had essentially been, become dominant in, in textile production. But the gender relations were in small workshops where women had a lot of power and all that kind of thing. Hong Kong was in a lot of difficulty about in the late 1970s because it was running out of labor resources. It couldn't expand anymore. And then you know, Deng Xiaoping opened up Hong Kong, uh, opened up China, and Hong Kong uh, business flooded into China. But they found a completely different labor regime there in which they had migrant, young migrant girls who could be kind of basically brought in from the countryside and turned into a huge kind of proletariat who, who had you know, almost no experience of industrial labor or, or, or even, even Western consumerism and so on. And, and, and so you get a completely different labor regime emerging in southern China compared to the Hong Kong. Result is Hong Kong, at some point or other, stops being a producer because it can't compete with the Chinese regime, which is based on a certain gender kind of construction. So this is what I mean by labor regime, by, by uh, uh, value regimes. And it's important, therefore, when you're doing an analysis to kind of say, what kind of value regime am I in? And what, what kind of value regime exists there which would allow certain things to happen? I mean, China became the workshop of global capitalism because it had a certain value regime already in place. 
partly a rally regime which was created under Mao. I mean, there's a mistake that kind of says that somehow or other Mao didn't do anything and that Mao, Mao was overcome. No, Mao actually laid the basis. And he, I mean, not, not knowingly, but he, the, the basis that was there when Deng Xiaoping decided to go in this other direction was, was, uh, was something that had come out of the Mao era, Maoist era. So again, the value regime is very important to look at. And how many value regimes there are, I don't know, and how we talk about them, you know, that's a kind of question of the empirical kind of historical, historical study. But it's very significant now. Now, and, the, and, and this is now coming up in another kind of way. If Britain goes through with Brexit, what is it going to do? What kind of value regime is it going to create? What kind of value regime exists in Britain right now to create anything? This is really kind of a fascinating kind of dilemma. And there are people who are thinking about it, you know, and other, most British politicians don't think about it, but there is this kind of question. If Brexit happens, you know, what, what, where, where you're separated now from that value regime, which was, you know, you were essentially embedded in that, can you float off out of this regime and do something else? Hmm? U.S. economy? Well, I don't think the U.S. economy is separating from anything. I mean, there's a value regime here, yeah. That's I think British would choose the U.S. economy. Ah, they may try, yeah. Okay, I guess we'll see you next week. And uh, please don't get don't don't get distracted by chapter three. I mean, just try and get through it and kind of go. Okay, all right, we'll work it out in class, you know. But come with lots of questions about it because it's it's a very it's a lot of interesting things go on. But it's it's like you are headed down this this in this flow. But the flow has kind of ended up in a delta where there are a thousand streams all kind of running around like this. So it's a bit complicated. Okay?